Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. 
the reason I brought that point up is when I see, it's almost like the name Michael didn't mean anything to me. So when I see, maybe because of that narrative, how I got it, when I meet other Michaels, like, it didn't mean, didn't mean much to me. That's pretty interesting. I feel no fraternal bond to right, right, other right. Michaels. Um, so you, you were born in Detroit. Correct. Which is right near where my wife was born. Really? Where was she born? Ann Arbor. Oh, sick. Great. Um, But it's interesting. There's all these incredible musicians from Detroit. I mean, there's such a lineage of people, you know, let alone Motown, which is just insane. And even in a contemporary way, having White Stripes and having Eminem, what is it about Detroit that seems to create these crazy lyricists? That I don't. I don't know what the thread between all of this is. I mean, it could be the weather. Um, it could be something as woo-woo as the birds. Um, maybe melodically. I, 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 and people can like turn this podcast <laughs> off right now, but um, my mother always tells a story that when I was two, I went on the, in our backyard and I would hear the birds and try to repeat the melodies back to them. And I really do believe that the melodies that come out of my brain in the studio are very influenced by those birds that I grew up around. That's amazing. Do you remember the first song that you sang? Like when you were walking around? Ever? Yeah, I mean, my I actually like, don't know. I actually don't even remember doing that. My my mother tells me that. I don't. I don't remember. You well, for sure. You don't remember the birds part. Yeah. But do you rem- like? I think my first oh, album yeah, is the- like is like was like Toto Rosanna. Mm. I used to walk around being like Rosanna. I remember <laughs> like we were talking about kids songs yesterday. Oh, I remember yeah. like Skidamarinka Dinky yeah. Dink Skidamarinky Do. I love you. Yeah. I love you in the morning and underneath or in the afternoon. Love you in the evening and underneath the moon. That's different but I think I think <laughs> what's interesting about that the skidamarinky dinky dink and then you have something like I know that there's obviously a different uh, etymology to it but something like the bow chicka wow wow later and the <laughs> idea of having like finding songs that where some of the hook doesn't have to be a lyric you know is super interesting that sometimes it is like the sound of the birds. Like sometimes it literally can be a sample of something that you just wouldn't expect. And yeah. I think that's like pretty interesting. It probably has a lot to do with the kind of music you were raised around. I think you know? so. Did yeah. your parents do music? No, no. No one in my family really does. My mother can sing. She's a pretty voice, but she never really pursued it or did anything with it. When did you start doing music? I started writing songs when I was eight, wow. I started rapping. And the, 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 in songs probably in the form of like long rap verses. <laughs> so I guess maybe not even really songs. Do like you verses, any writing verses. No, I don't. I don't. People always ask me, that. well, show me one. I'm like, well, it's re- I remember they're bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Sure. Um, Did but you I, perform them for people or your family or something? Family. I had two older cousins. I'm sitting next to one of my cousins now, but we have a, another cousin named Tulsi Anderson who's a wonderful MC, underground MC in Seattle. 
And he just goes by Tulsi, T-U-L-S-I. And then we have another family friend named Eli Sweet, both of which were like really great MCs. And um, I thought they were, like I really looked up to them and about 10 years older than me. And uh, so I would, I would write my raps and show them. They were always really encouraging, but also honest. Show me where I could get better. And, um, you know, and then we, I remember having a sleepover uh, with a couple of my buddies. And we'd all, we'd all gathered these, like, little instrumentals. Like, someone had a Project Pat, like, single. And it was, like, the explicit, the clean, and the instrumental. And, like, I had this Moby album, which had a lot of just beats on it. And we just, we freestyled at night. And my buddies were like, you know, it was fun for them. And they, like, that was it. And I, I never really stopped after that. That's crazy. So did, were, did you, I mean, obviously you're having Moby beats. It kind of makes sense when you think about it. Because you, and not to jump all the way to when you're starting to do your mixtapes, but you have all these musical backgrounds. And it, yet these lyrics feel... They feel conversational, but they have that rhythmic kind of vibe to it that feels like it's a freestyling thing. It feels like you're like writing raps over, mm-hmm. you know, over like, I don't want to say more melodic chord changes. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Rather, Wholeheartedly. Um, this thing is very astute observation on your, po- on your part um, because I've, I've rapped longer than I've sung and... Uh, it wasn't until I was about 20 years old that I started putting melody, basically putting melody to my raps. And my whole thing was I wanted to sing the way, I was such a hip-hop fan, I wanted to sing the way I wanted to hear a singer sing. So with my first song that you talked about, in the intro, first hit song, Cooler Than Me, it has like a, a complex rhyme scheme where I go, designer shades to hide your face. I never really heard singers sing with those kind of rhymes. It was like, it was just fun thing for me to try. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely like, I, I definitely was a rapper first. You Did know. you have a name as a rapper ever? Or uh, were you always? When I was very young, it was just Mike P. Uh-huh. And then I just, yeah, I decided very early on that I didn't want to have a moniker that was different from my name in my life because my music was meant to be connected to my life, not separate. And I made that, yeah, I made that decision probably was 14, 15 years old. And it's still, it's still, I still feel the same way about that topic. Were you actually, like, are there mixtapes and and versions of these songs that exist from high school? Were you starting this process before you went to college? I mean, I've, I, I mean, the story from you from college on, there's a lot of information about it. Yeah. But like, you're in the middle of Michigan. I assume at the time that's right around, I don't know, is that pre, I don't know, is that pre Eminem or is that like kind of like right in the prime of that, right? When Eminem was, when s- seemingly, it's a bias, but like in my experience, it seemed like Eminem was most popular when I was in. Eighth or ninth grade, or maybe seventh, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. Did you feel like you wanted to be a? I mean, it's we. All right, so the reason why I'm bringing that up is more because he's from Detroit than mm-hmm. because he's a white rapper. Sure, but you know, there it well, kind of opened Eminem the door. Definitely has like a 
a influence on my own. I yeah. think on American culture as a whole, but definitely on in my life for sure. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, you know, his internal rhyme schemes are so unique, and it seems like I, I'm. I you see the videos I'm freestyling, and it's just out of control. It's out of control. You know, um, I don't understand how people can freestyle like that. I understand how people can craft that. That's a whole other thing than being able to just off the cuff make these rhymes. Like Lin-Manuel now with like Hamilton, that guy can freestyle. Mm -hmm. There are very few people who can really like freestyle. You know, like were you doing things like rap battles and stuff like that? Yeah. Was he doing the football games in my high school? And like uh, (laughs) battle battle kids would be like a little 20, 30 person crowd, you know, a circle around me and some other poor kid who I'd inevitably annihilate. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who was actually probably, I was very small for my age as well. I didn't really grow until I was 17, 18. So there are always people much bigger than me, you know? Yeah. I could kind of win at that, (laughs) which is nice, you know? There's like a status game there where it's like, you think that sometimes being like the Goliath gives you power. You know, but sometimes it makes you slow. You know, or it's sometimes it's like all those advantages are the things you can poke at, especially when you're verbalizing it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Did you have fans in high school? I, I recorded an album um, my senior year in my mother's, on my mother's computer and, uh, and printed up maybe. I think we did like 700 or 800 like CDs sure. and sold them all. Crazy. Yeah, so like the trunk of my car. But I mean, these are all kids who knew, they'd grown up with me. Yeah, but 700 so, so, and 800, like that's, I don't, how big was your high school? I think it was about 1,300 total. Yeah. So everybody in high school must have known it. <laughs> yeah. Or at least heard it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Were you playing venues in Detroit? No, I didn't play any shows. I didn't play any shows until I was in college. Did you have any of the songs like Cooler Than Me in high school? Did you have any of those songs? Like no. Or like even the lyric stuff started? No. Yeah. That really changed for me moving to... My music in high school was very pedantic and wordy and dark. You know, I was... I had a real t- tough time in high school. I would get very depressed. Why? It just seemed like the winter time really, you know, it would come around like clockwork every year. Where, you know, you we would get to school at 7 a.m., sun is not up yet, and go to like basketball practice or something after, and when I left, the sun was down. And... Yeah, it just felt like I felt. I remember thinking like, none of this matters. School doesn't matter. My life doesn't matter. It's not like really a point to all this. Did you feel like that translated in like your relationships with other people around you? Yeah, of course. Um, how could it not? Right? right. You know, if you feel like nothing matters, you're probably not going to be giving your all to your sure. your friends or your or to anything really. Um, that being said, I did really well in school. I was like a straight A student. I got one B plus actually in band, but other than that, I had, I your had, one B plus was in band. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah, I had uh, 
you were really good at physics, but you just couldn't seem to figure out music. <laughs> the thing was, I did, I was really good in band, but the teacher band was really like an arbitrary grade. We didn't have like tests per se. You know, we just like we'd show up and play music, and then the teacher would give us a grade. And the teacher and I didn't get along super well. So. I mean, they have to know now what you were capable of. I don't know, yeah. Maybe. Like, is there some hometown <laughs> newspaper that has written about your success? There has to be. I have gone back to my high school. You have? Yeah. yeah. To go speak or something? Yeah, and no, I shot a music video there. With, um, first song I did with Big Sean called Top of the World. That's so crazy. Yeah. So you brought Big Sean back to your high school? He didn't come to that okay. scene. That's pretty funny. Yes, I shot a video there. So you go to um, uh, you go from high school to Duke, which is like Correct. one of the best schools in the country. So obviously the other A's, the non-band grades, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that helped you out. Were you good at taking tests and everything? Yeah, yeah. So did you like? Were you thinking at the time? Yeah, I'm gonna go and pursue. You weren't going to Duke. No one was going to Duke to pursue being a musician. No, it's a good question. I. I honestly felt like, oh, I did my album, I'm done with that, and I'm going to go make a lot of money and really stick it to all these kids that I'm going with. That's part of the reason I went to Duke. Actually, the reason I went to Duke, and it's a terrible reason, was I wanted to beat everyone in my high school. And um, that was really uh, the beginning of chapter two of my life. Chapter one of my life was, whoa, I'm in the world. And I'm I'm overwhelmed by the world. I'm little little. What does it mean? I'm in the world. So I start chapter two, which was I'm gonna beat the world, right? And chapter two is really a a reaction to chapter one, right? Because I'm I'm overwhelmed by this thing. I'm just gonna fight it and beat it and beat everyone else in it. Do better than them. Did that personality like that's got to be hard sometimes to. For relationships with people, also, oh, yeah. you know, like, because did you feel like you were better than people? I had a magical cocktail, and it's great to talk about this because I've been doing a lot of work with this. I just finished um, two courses of the Landmark Forum, which I highly recommend to anyone. This is jamming, um, and I also spent a week in solitude last month where I was in a cabin on the property of a, of a monastery, but I had no human contact for seven days. And I had this, prior to doing this work, I had this really deadly cocktail of thinking I was both not good enough, but also better than everyone else, right? <laughs> so I was really living my life that way. And um, yeah, come doing those those three things, the two landmark courses in the week alone, um, allowed me to see that, right? Because it, it was just kind of running like a machine in the background. And um, once I was able to see the machine running, the act of seeing it puts you outside of it, right? To look at something, you have to be outside of it. And it allowed me to create a new possibility for myself outside of that, um, which for me is, you know, having people around me feel noticed and uplifted and loved, you know, which is like, it sounds like just word, cliche words, but it's a, been a real paradigm shift for me to live a life that's not about me, 
to uh, yeah actively there's a difference between being emotionally in the room with everybody else there's another thing to like actively love people like there are some people who are really who actively put that energy out there which is a different thing than being you can just be a positive person and you sure. naturally put some stuff in the world but you can even go one step further and actively be involved in other people's lives right, and, have and the purposely point, like lift people up you know sure have the point of your life be that the peop, other people's lives be great sure as opposed to your life being great and of course your life will be great by doing that and so it's a, li- a bit counterintuitive but that's just it's changed my whole world yeah, changed my whole world because I really, I would do nice things for people when it's convenient, or you know, select relationships here and there, like look out for someone. But really, I was, I was chapter two trying to beat the world, and I finally feel like I'm in chapter three, which is loving the world, being with the world, and helping it. Yeah. In that chapter two, you get you start that you walk into Duke, kind of with a chip on your shoulder. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But you were social. I mean, you know, at least from what I read, you were in a fraternity. You were like, you're starting to still you're still rapping during all this, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, do you have a chip on your shoulder in? It's interesting that you say that, like this whole idea of like cooler than me being your first single. Like, it's so honest when you talk about like this chip on your shoulder of like you think you're cooler than me. It's like so, it's profoundly honest. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Like, did you were you writing this really vulnerable music, considering that you have a chip on your shoulder? That seems to be counterintuitive. It's unusual to have an antagonist yeah. as the listener and have it be so charming. Antagonist as the listener. Like when oh, you're like, saying like you so think you're cooler than me. I'm talking to the listener and yeah. almost insulting them. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And yet there's something really charming about it. I think that's really difficult. It's rare that songs like that work. You know, I mean look at the look Thanks. at all the other songs. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean look all the other songs, you know, Beneath Your Beautiful Boyfriend, Sugar, you know. All these songs, none of there's no like, you know, even please don't go. None of them have a bad guy. But your first single is a little bit of like addressing your chip on your shoulder, like right off the bat. Yeah, and I really felt that about a lot of the females at at my school. Like they didn't, yeah, like they didn't know how special I was. So this is my jab, my get back. And that's not something I'm proud of, you know, saying that. Um, because I didn't allow anyone in, you know. It was all a game I was setting up to continue being right <laughs> about about that, you know. Um, but that, yeah, I don't know, does that make sense? Yeah, all? I mean, there's there's a lot of irony in the fact that you go, you write that song. My guess is that there were a lot of girls that started to come out of the woodwork after that. It's so, it's yeah, with that song, of course, right? You know, someone who really was embarrassed, had a tough time speaking to girls growing up. And still, um, even when that song came out in college, still felt the same way, very shy. And then all of a sudden this song about like basically being rejected by girls is getting me girls, right? And then 
seems like we're going kind of in chronological order, but I'm going to jump ahead to when I wrote Took a Pill in Ibiza, which is basically about failing or the period after one's worldly success. And then that brought me more, more worldly success, right? So, this, yeah, I've had this sort of... Amazing balancing act. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Um, I was going to bring down Windows Down by Big Time Rush, but we can, we can pass oh. it. <laughs> we can pass it that. <laughs> <laughs> so but that was, that's an interesting thing. That was me, Black Bear, and wow. B Major, or Major Ali now. I think it just goes by Major. And then, then there was uh, someone else more wrote on that song. Is that how you guys met? No, uh, my Black Bear. Yeah, um, we met. I th- I heard when I was promoting my first album. Um, I w- you know doing promo over overseas, and I'd have long flights. And um, Mike Karen and Ben Madahi used to give me. I used to always ask them for like give me a big folder of beats um, for my flights. And they'd send me like 70 beats and I'd listen to them all. And I kind of write on the on the plane. And in one of these folders was a was a couple of tracks produced by MDL. And they had hooks on them by Matt Musto, who later became Black Bear. And I just loved them. And I was like, well, I want to do a session with those two guys. And Matt lived in Florida at the time, so we flew Mike and I, Mike Karen and I flew him out. And we did a session, MDL, me and Bear, and I think like boyfriend. We used to just like we hit it off. We hit it off. We used to work together like pretty much every day. We do a song a day. The only time we spent two days on a song was when we did that song, Boyfriend, for Bieber. It's like, oh well, we can finish this tomorrow. Like it's good enough to revisit this. Like we felt good about it. Um, how soon after you finished it? That was originally for you, though, right? Yeah, all of them were originally for me. Right? Yeah. Is yeah. it hard? Do you you don't like writing for other people? I don't really know how to, honestly. Um, all the cuts I have for other people, if they're not done in the room with the artist, it's not right with Labyrinth. You know, for Labyrinth, we can do it together. But if I ever have a cut that like someone that I've done and then they separately take it it's always something I've done for myself and then either you know usually just doesn't fit where I'm going artistically so boyfriend you you finish for yourself I know this isn't this isn't a weird place in your record deal at the time like you had already done you know you're cooler than me please don't go bow chikawawa all are pretty successful and then you go and do you're working on uh the next album right after that and boyfriend is part of that is that what the process am i on the right page yeah like and I, when this is happening i had released i believe a single for my next album it was supposed to be my next album that's called the way it used to be and you're right those songs were all successful but they were all progressively less popular so cooler than me was first and that was my first single and it did really well. And I thought, oh, this is what happens when I put singles out. You know, it's pretty cool. And then I put up Please Don't Go and it did well, but not as well. And did Bow Chicka Wow and did well, but not as well as Please Don't Go. And then Way It Used to Be did not as well as 
about you, et cetera. So I, I had really postured myself as someone who, if I didn't have another big hit single, his album, my album wasn't going to come out. And I didn't have one. And uh, Whose fault is that? That's my fault. You know, my life is my life, you know. So um, if you blame the circumstances in your life, you have no power, right? Because there's always a, I can find a reason, but that shifts the responsibility of that situation to someone else. Then I look in the present moment, then I'm still, I'm still beholden to the circumstances now, if that's how I choose to view my life. But I choose to view my life as I'm the author of it. You know, and the decisions that I make, the choices I make, create the results that I have in it, right? Um, and that's a... Does that make sense? Of course. Okay. Um, I wish I had a, a nice metaphor to attach to this idea, but I, I don't really at the moment. I'll think of one probably tonight <laughs> after this podcast is over. Um, Just give me writing credit. But yeah, it's... It's, you, don't have, you, you got it, bro. On, on my metaphors, <laughs> you know, I just gonna shout you out. Every, every exactly. <laughs> it's, it's gonna be some. But that's some a. Crystal. It's a really. It's a really. A point I don't want to breeze over, you know, for the people listening, which is. It's your fault. The things going wrong in your life right now. It's your fault. Your fault. And really look, really look, and own that. And once you do. You now have the freedom to make new decisions and, and create new possibility for yourself. Like I've done some, and I've kind of referenced this before. I've done some crummy things. Yeah, what were those? Well, one of them was when I did the song "Cooler Than Me." I had a band at the time, and we were called Mike Posner and the Brain Trust. It was my band at Duke. It was me, Eric Holgis, who's now a singer in Del, a band called Delta Ray, who's incredible. And we had a guitarist named Jeff. Oh. And when we wrote the song, Jeff came up with the chords for the bridge. And then when we went, we went, um, the school year ended. We went, all, all went home for summer break. And when we came back, Jeff didn't bring his guitar back. And I was offended. You know, I was like, oh, you don't, you don't believe in the, I don't know why. I didn't really talk to him. But I decided that, he didn't believe in the project or whatever. And he told me, I'm going to get guitar like fall break or something like that. Um, but it was like, the band was real serious for me. I wanted to like take over the world. And I'm not sure like I had, he was into it that way. Which is fine, you know? It's fine. Like he may have different goals. So when it came time to do the splits on the song, I screwed him. I paid him as a session musician. We really should have had like small percentage of the pub because he came up with the chords to the bridge and we wrote the melody to the chords that he came up with and wrote the lyrics to the melody that was written over the chords, et cetera. And it wasn't until this year, that was seven, that was 2009. This is 2017 now, eight years ago. It wasn't until month ago I was like I gotta make this thing right you know every time I think about this song I think about how I screwed this guy and so I um I talked to my manager Ryan who's in the other room I was like we gotta 
like add up how much money I owe him. And it wasn't a small amount. And uh, I called him. And I was like, I told him exactly what I just told you. I was like, I screwed you, man. Like you, you. I'm, I'm gonna send you this. You know, I'm gonna change the split. So going forward, like you know, it just goes to you. And he said, "Thank you. You're so generous." I said, "No, you're not hearing me. Like I, I like stole this from you. It's not generous. You know, this is yours." Okay. So what's the point of this story? Well, now that I've taken responsibility for that action, right? It's like, I made the choice to screw him. Well, it gave me the freedom, one, to like pay him now, right? Because before I had some reason it was all justified in my mind. But no, 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 I made the choice. Me, you know? And now I was able to, one, pay him what he's owed, right? Um, which I don't know how it would affect his life. I think it will have some effect in, in some way, hopefully a positive one. And it also, now going forward, gives me the freedom to make a different choice, right? So I'll never, I'll never make that mistake again. But if I pretended like the reasons were the, were the impetus for making the choice to screw him, those reasons could show up again and I would make the same choice. So the ownership, right, is big. And it, and it gives freedom. The responsibility gives freedom, you know, to be who you want to be, you know? You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So interesting, because I think we all, you know, every song is a new business deal with the people around you. I, I think people assume that because you're doing splits on an asset, Every time you create an intellectual property, whatever it is, it doesn't even have to be a song. I mean, it could be whatever business, whatever idea you have with someone else in the room. You guys are splitting this intellectual property in some pie. And it's easy for people who have the power in the room to just take just incredible advantage of it. And also, there, and there's so many people who, who do it and... And don't make it right. I did it. I did it another time too. What was that? I did it to Black Bear. I did it to Black Bear and boyfriend, and I had I did the same call. 
And you guys are in a band already at this Now point. we are. Now we are. I called and I was like, well, then I did it with Jeff and I was like, well, this is the only other time I think I've done this. And I got to make it right. And I called him up. I was like, I said, I'm sorry. Like, I, like I'm going to, you know, send you what I owe you. And, uh, and he said, you know, I, I forgive you. I've moved on. We've kind of talked. We had kind of talked about it. He said, the only thing that, that really hurt me was the big fish conversation. I said, what? What's, the, what's that? I don't even remember that. He said, you called me. You called me when we were doing like the deal on the splits and you said, sometimes big fish eat little fish. Well... I just felt so terrible hearing that back, right? It's like I can't even imagine saying that to someone now. It's so like against everything I believe in now. Um, but I did that, you know? And so... Why do you think you were like that? I decided... Like what were those justifications? When you say like there were all those justifications? A couple of things. One, I felt like, I felt like no one knows how special I am. And I would set it, like we talked about a little earlier, I'd set it up so no one could know how special I was. Um, and so because, because I was like misunderstood, then I could, I could justify taking my shots back at the world here and there, Right. Um, I'm this underappreciated genius, right? And so I'll I'll what I'm losing out in what I'm what I'm not getting by being misunderstood by the world, I'll sort of even the score by doing things like this. You know? And this is all over my life. Like I I broke up with uh, my ex via text message. Mm. It's most like one of the like, I'm so ashamed of that, you know? Um, but, yeah, it wasn't until, like, this year. I mean, in the last few months, like, calling these people and saying sorry and actually me, actually being sorry, right? Not just saying it. Right. And, and asking, what was that like for you? You know, and hearing how that really affected them. And now I'm not that person anymore. And the proof is, right, that I called now. The proof is I paid the money back. You know, like before I never did that. Right. And so chapter three, chapter three. Do you think that having a song become so successful, like you were saying, that's really about failure and the original recording is so heartfelt. It's so real. I mean, it feels that way. Do you think that seeing the success come from something that honest and vulnerable that there's like no room for you to have this facade anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like it's it's like in the open, like now we all know that you think like it's like you opened up this part. It was like no longer about like this no one else was at fault. That song is literally about like I spent my money. Mm-hmm. And then it's this PSA, you know? <laughs> like, don't, you don't want to do this like I did, you know? Right. It's like you totally go out there and, and you just like leave that out there. I hear you. There's a couple, a couple things I want to say. One, 
having no facade can become a facade in itself. Um, so, so that's A. And then I just, I've been talking a lot to, um, if you haven't already, you should have, I'd like to hear you have him on the, on the show. Uh, Taylor Goldsmith from Dawes, um, who in my opinion is like one of our best writers now, period. Crazy. Um, and he has a song, Dawes has a song called A Little Bit of Everything. Um, who probably some of your listenership has heard that song and the other half or the other percentage that hasn't heard it should listen to it twice. And the first time, as you know, you'll hear sort of the sonics of the song and, and the melodies in some words. And the second time you'll hear the words and you'll, you'll probably be crying. You'll be blown away by his writing. And what's special about that song is it starts off, uh, first lyric is, with his back against the San Francisco traffic on the bridge's side that faces towards the jail, setting out to join the demographic, he hoists his first foot up over the rail. Right, so a guy about to kill himself, right? And um, by the end of this song, he's taking you from there to one of the moments of being it, as Kerouac said, one of those moments of unfiltered purpose and meaning and having everything make sense. And I've been talking to him because, and I took the first two verses of that song kind of, do what I took a pill in Ibiza does, where it's like, it's unabashedly real and honest. But he didn't stop there. He then gave hope at the end, gave the, shined a light at the end. And I stopped there and I took a pill in Ibiza. It just really was like, hey, this is dark. And look how dark it is. And isn't it so, it's kind of beautiful how dark it is. But I haven't then shown the light at the end. Is know? that what the next is? That this chapter? Yeah, that's the whole next project. You know, um, you know, just by being in the world, you affect the world, right? And pretending you don't affect the world affects the world. So yeah, whether you like it or not, you're yeah. still a butterfly. You're still, you know, you're, yeah, you're in it. Yeah, you yeah. know, and. Um, I've just I've just decided and that and I'm realizing that you know I make a difference. I make a difference, you know, um to my to my family, to the people I work with, to my friends, who I am affects their lives and to my fans, I make a difference in their life too. And um you know, I have people come up to me and say this song like save my life. Or a song like Changed My Life, Help Me Get Sober, etc. And I wasn't like, I wasn't trying to do that ever. I was always just, I was always just writing for me. Yeah. And so now it's like I'm finally in a, I finally have a life where the people around me matter to me. Yeah. And my fans matter to me now. Um, so the music is this, this, um, this offering to the world. Right, it's not some way to like take a jab at the world or um, make a mark on it. Right, that metaphor is really poignant. Right, make sure. a mark on the world. 
it's it's like a little violent, right? Like you're, it's almost like you're hurting the world to to like be noticed. That's interesting. I think of making a mark on the world, like tagging it. You know, like like it could be like making a mark on the world, not like a, leaving a scar, but leaving mm-hmm. like a a mural, a mural, M- murals, a, a mural, a mural, you know? <laughs> a mural, a mural, a mural. You Old know, like Jewish aunt, yeah, yeah a little Jewish. Aunt. <laughs> but you know, leaving a mural on the on the wall is like marking the world too, or leaving music in the zeitgeist. Is yeah, a little like. The mark doesn't have to be. But isn't it like it's still about you? You know? Mm-hmm. It's like I want to be so cool and I want to do such a good job of being cool that even when I'm dead, I still look cool. Yeah, right. It's still all about yeah. you. You know, it's like. Yeah, we talk about a lot how stupid legacy is. It's stupid. You know what I mean? Because, like, in, in. Nobody. Beethoven's only 160 years ago, <laughs> 150 years ago. Do you know what I mean? Like, it. Most people can't tell the difference between Beethoven and Bach, which is, you know, 300 years ago, not uh, less than 300 years ago. No, most people can't tell the difference between, you know, like a commoner wouldn't know the difference between uh, Coltrane and Miles Davis, and they don't even play the same instrument. Yeah. You know, like people don't, the biggest names in history, like people don't know the difference between the Who and probably the Rolling Stones now. They yeah. don't. Like a kid won't know yeah, that. Like, so like when's well, last who's time gonna you... give a shit about like, you know, no one's gonna listen to any song that I've done in fifty years, seventy years from now, a hundred years. Even if it's unless it's imagine, which even that, like But like you're right. It's like even you know? if you do write one of those, still Zoom out like five hundred or a thousand years, and it's yeah, yeah. Like, when's the last time you sang a song from the year eight hundred? Like, you know yeah, what I exactly. mean? It's gone. Well, it's weird. And it's like Pachelbel Cannon's like the, he's like the one guy who gets his name, and like you know, it's like I don't when, know who that is. Yeah, dun, 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 that chord change, which is like is Pachelbel's. Canon, like it's a lot of people walk down the aisle to that. Okay. It's also like, but it also ends up being the chord progression on a bunch of Green Day records mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's just like a common sort of like chord change. Yeah. But really, like, you know, nobody, nobody will remember. And that doesn't sound defeatist. I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think it's bad that there's no, that. I just think people are sometimes into music for the wrong thing, or they the, think they're more they think they're more important than they really are, rather than being like in the moment, putting out good energy is as valuable as anything but isn't else. But is like it's they're into music for the wrong thing because they're into life for the wrong thing, right? They're still in chapter two, mm-hmm. and that's like I feel weird like overusing that. Metaphor. No, I like it. Like, it's a, and, and it's a, we I, all, we're only going to do this interview probably once, unless right. we do it in like twenty years from now, or <laughs> and three I, years from now, or off chapter four. Then, yeah, exactly. Hopefully, but, um, Ch- and- chapter eighty-one. It's <laughs> 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 so old. <laughs> Have you met my wife, Muriel? <laughs> <laughs> chapter eighty-two, Muriel. Becomes <laughs> yeah. um, the that's, you know, that's not it's to awesome. say like everyone's life has that same trajectory, <laughs> yeah. right? But um, it's a lot. It's a deeper issue, right? Someone doing music for that reason looks at life that way, and yeah. and they 
whether they've sat down and made that decision or they're just living that way because they it just like their life kind of happened that way it doesn't make a difference they're still living their life for themselves sure and imagine a world where people didn't do that yeah i mean like how peaceful would it be if I everyone mean, was like I mean, was like yeah. not trying to make themselves the focus and it's it's so funny cuz it's a change in the mind but it's like if we're in venice right now right and Five minutes away, there's a lot of homeless people on that boardwalk. And if the people in this, just like in this neighborhood, who, which one of them is me, right? If we decided that homelessness on that beach was no longer acceptable, so people would all be inside quick. But it's that we've decided that it is acceptable, you know? And it's a it's a collective decision that I'm a part of, you know. Sure. It's, it's like, but it's just we just change our minds. You know the whole thing, and, the, and then the action comes, right? Right. And you see, like quickly, you know. That that building in London that burned, you know, a couple months ago. It's like this building burned down and like killed, you know, whatever, fifty, sixty people, and then it also it displaced like a hundred and fifty low income families. Mm. And one of the problems London has is that all these rich people throughout the world own London property but don't live in it. So they have all these vacant, beautiful homes that could house all these people immediately. Yeah. But they had nowhere to put these families. And yet there's all these homes like right around the area that are just vacant. 100%. And how gross that is. They, all these people are, are homeless after having their homes burned down because of negligence and by the by the British government at the time, you know? Yeah. And then they don't have the power to open up those doors to the people that are left. Yeah. I Almost. hear you. But I also know like my home's gonna be vacant next week. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Should we tell them your address? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> um two two last questions. One is when you look back on something like Sugar and Boyfriend, which are two massive hits for two massive artists mm-hmm. that were originally for you. Mm-hmm. In chapter three, I don't know if you look at those as representing you now any more than you didn't think they represented you then, those songs. I wouldn't say artist. they necessarily didn't represent me. Um do you look at those as positive things that happened in your life? Yeah, for sure. I mean, also, like we talked about before, I was shelved, you know? So my, my music wasn't coming out. And I think it was my fault, as we talked about. But it was, it was, it was a pretty simple decision because they were, they were kind of like, let Adam Levine or Justin Bieber sing your songs or leave them on your laptop. That was really the the decision. That's a pretty easy decision. That is an know? easy decision, and I don't regret it at all. And of um, I have like really good relationship with, like a friendship with Justin. No, and we're not like we don't talk every day, but we're cool. And so that and, you know, I've toured with them, so that was really beautiful. Came out of that, and my relationship with James Valentine from Room Five is awesome. Like you're sitting next to his guitars right now. Yeah, he's he's amazing. He also he, said he would do this. Yeah, he, he's he's fantastic. Fantastic yeah. man. So like he, he's like a great human, unbelievable yeah, human. I love that guy. 
And, um, yeah, so all that, like, came out of doing that stuff. And, you know, like, when we did Sugar, Luke, like, finished that track and just being able to go in and I was like, can I just come watch? And he was like, yeah, of course. And, you know, learning so much watching Luke finish finish something, right? Finish something that's, like, very close to done, but, like, finish it. Yeah. You know? Like, and t- like taking notes, James and I still talk about that. Those yeah. sessions, like I took notes the day, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we do a segment where I list five people, and you just say the first thing that comes off the top of your okay. head. Okay. <laughs> Big Sean. Inspiration. Black Bear. Pure. David Massey. The head of your record label. Sweetheart. Avicii. Talented. Okay, and then last one, Jack Kerouac. Genius. Troubled genius. Troubled genius. (laughs) Um, Well, I feel like, you know, when you say, like, usually I ask people to leave a message for writers. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I shouldn't put words in your mouth. What's a message you would leave for upcoming writers? Yeah, your job is to create the art that you want to exist in the world. Period. It's very simple job. What you like, what you want to exist, what you think is cool, it's your job to make that because nobody else can. Nobody else can. If you're doing what I, you think I'll think is cool or what you think Ross thinks is cool, that's our job. Your job is to make what you hear in your head. And that's it. It's very simple. Have fun doing it. I love that. Well, I first heard about you in 2010 I think and you were about to play the Roxy Woo! and it must have been like your first time through LA but like it's before Cooler Than Me really became a hit but everyone mm-hmm. was like was Big Sean with me? maybe yeah. but I mean I, I was so out of the loop I was in a band I wasn't like really co-writing I was just really starting the co-writing you know? either. What? just quickly for the record yeah I met Big Sean summer after high school, right before I went to Duke. And I I was basically like a part of his entourage. I used to do beats for him and do hooks for him. I didn't know anyone else. So my freshman year at Duke, I'd just like, I'd do like 100 beats a year, sometimes with hooks, and send them all to Sean. He'd use like one or two of them. And when I did do my first mixtape, he gave me three verses. And... That was a big reason why anyone listened to me. And just for for everyone in our crew, he made this all real. Like this life that I have now, I didn't think could actually happen until he like he got signed to Kanye and to Island Def Jam and so that was like the guy I was rapping with. Like we'd freestyle together. So you know, crazy. so it was like, whoa, I could do it too. And I'm going to. Here I go. So that's why when you bring his name, I say inspiration because I wouldn't be here for one for him. Yeah. I mean, to interrupt you. No, I, I mean, like, like I had, I had so many notes. As we like, looked dude, back we on that, I was like, I have to put that in the story. <laughs> Asterisk. I love that though. <laughs> like this is this is the thing. It's like, you know, you're you're a pretty public human. You know, it's easy to find out a lot about the surface stuff that you've gone through and. Well, you can tell certainly from the press, from 
pill in Ibiza is that you've had a chance to start putting out a, a message as like a person outside of like being an artist in a way. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Like there was like, there's like a more feeling like like a spiritual connection to what you're saying in the press. You're very open about, I think the, because the lyrics are so vulnerable, you were also really vulnerable in the press, Mm. you know? And I think like the whole point of this podcast is to show attainability and to show that, you know, artists and songwriters are also people. Like they're just they're just people, and this is the profession they chose. And just like you guys, yeah, yeah, kind of like everybody's like, mo- you know, people are motivated, and they're they might see art easier, whatever. But it's that this is really a good artist is somebody who can pull from their life, and the edginess in pill and Ibiza isn't that you took a pill. I think that's the important part. Is like that didn't come from the edginess. A lot of times when somebody's like, "Oh, we want songs that are edgy," they seem like just say "fuck" or "shit," and all of a sudden it's edgy. <laughs> no, and it's, it's corny. like no, 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 no. it's corny. It becomes really like cliche edgy right off the bat. But what makes something edgy to me is when someone talks about something that no one else is willing to say. Mm. And I know my story was. Not not as big of the peak and valley before the higher peak, but there certainly were like massive like peaks and valleys for me. And it's like, well, I talked to Benny about that too because we had the same. We were having a talk like this, and he said yeah. this. I said the same thing to him, where I was like, well, "We're talking about money or something." I was like, "Well, I don't make that much," but and he goes, "It's the same. You feel the same feelings, though, right?" So, so the circumstances of your rise and fall, and like particulars, are different. But we felt the same yeah. emotion. I didn't mean, interrupt you. No, I just think it's the idea of being vulnerable in your music, and it's it's obvious. And it's like, I hope other artists that have the ability to write, because not all artists do, but I hope the other artists that have the ability to write can take note in how you are actively being humbled and humble. Mm. Like you were saying, like it's, it's hard to be a, an active lover of humanity sometimes. Some people, one of my friends once said, you're kind of close-minded to close-minded people. Wow. And that, like, really, and that was really hard for me to hear. Because yeah. like, there's, there's like a, in a, an elitist nature for people who tend to be personally I'm more on a liberal side of things and there's like an elitist nature of people who are like no I love everybody so I hate the people who hate people but like that's not really you how that goes you don't actually love everybody and you don't love everybody yeah. and you know it's it's just hard to be it's hard to be humbled it must be really hard to be humbled when you have reached the pinnacle of your profession out of college and then your rise again gives you an opportunity to open doors for a lot of people I love how you are willing to admit and to make up for things that you've done wrong and there's so many people who are I know listen to this podcast that if if there's one if there's one person out there who listened to that part of the story mm-hmm. and did the same thing it would have a massive ripple effect. I think there probably will be. And I, I hope th- so. I, th- I thank you for 
given us both that platform today, yeah. you know, and that's that's why that's why I wanted to do this with you, yeah. you know, um, and the big excuse I always had was I'm I'm working on myself, you know, I, I, I'm you know I'm learning to meditate, I'm t- I'm doing the trips to India, you know, I'm, I'm taking yoga, etc. And in a couple years, I'll I'll have improved to the point where I'm gonna do what I actually want to do now right and i'm working on myself is a big cop-out people use in the city and i was the king of it you know it's like uh because i'm putting the work in the effort in i'm meditating i'm reading this this spiritual book that gives me then then i can use that as an excuse to be a dick right now because I'm not done doing the work, and one one day later I'll be okay. No, no, no. You, you're perfect right now. You're whole and complete, and you're pretending you're not. And you're wasting your life pretending you're not. You know. My dad died in January this year, and I don't know if you have your parents with you, but it just reminds you you're next. You know, it's so easy to pretend we're never. No, you don't have forever. And probably 98% of people listening to this right now have a list of what they want to do in their life and they have another list of what they actually do in their life. And there's some reason, some justification that they, or I'll say you, I'm talking directly to whoever's listening, that you have, there's some reason why you're not doing what you actually want to do now. And that reason, I really invite you to look at it and ask yourself, is it actually real? Or did I make it up so I don't have to be who I actually am, which is this great person, this amazing, powerful person? I love that. Get out there. Yeah. Get after it, you know? <laughs> well, on that note, let's get after some uh, some meditating. We yeah, do you want to hear what's the? I hear beautiful Stenage R and B upstairs. Let's happening. go up there. We'll we'll meditate to that. Yeah, exactly. I feel like there's some shirts off up there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And the Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed. Be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time... This is Ross Golan. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.